0: Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's discussion, I'm super pleased to say that I'm speaking with Arsia Alexandrovich, the Chief Legal Officer at American Family Insurance. It's a wonderful discussion. She kicks us off, letting us know that she immigrated to the US from Ukraine in 1991, just as a teenager at the time. The impact that had on her coming to the US without any language skills, how that kind of, you know, the resistance that built in her, the, the understanding and appreciation, I think, of the rule of law in the US having had a different experience in Ukraine and how important that was for her when growing up in the US and when choosing law as a career. She spent the last three years as the chief legal officer at American Family Insurance. So she talks about that, some of the priorities she has there. She talks about innovation, growth mindset, the goals that they've set around diversity, equity, inclusion. And we also talk a little bit about the future and the future challenges for legal, as well as uh, CLOs and GCs, regulation, data privacy, cybersecurity. So it's a fascinating discussion. And is uh, a delightful, delightful interviewee. So I had a fantastic time. And you know, she obviously has a, a very strong personal impact for her, given the current war in Ukraine. So she talks a little bit about that too. I'm sure you're going to love the discussion. So in the usual fashion, sit back, Chillax and enjoy the episode. Asia, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome aboard. I'm really looking forward to our discussion.
1: Thank you, Jim. I'm excited to be here.
0: Fantastic. Now, to set the scene for everyone, tell us a little bit about the Asia story, the, the career arc, what got you into law in the first place, and give us a high-level overview of your career.
1: Sure. Happy to do that. So I was born in Ukraine and I immigrated with my family to the United States in 1991. So um, had a little bit of a different start than maybe maybe yeah. some people, but that certainly has formed the foundation for what I've become as I, as I grew older. Definitely grew up in different economic conditions. I have seen things that I know my kids have never seen and hopefully will never see. I went to high school in the United States. It it was a big uh, shift and a big shock on the system to move as a teenager, but I think foundationally made me a lot more curious, apt for learning and more resilient, which are all really great qualities to have as you enter the legal profession. I went to college at Brandeis and then straight through to law school at Cornell. Kind of always was interested in law to a certain extent, And then as I went on my learning path, that interest just solidified. I grew up in a country where law and following the law was a little bit questionable, as it still is in many countries today. It was very exciting to me as a new immigrant to be in a country where the rule of law was actually followed. So that's kind of what got me interested in law. And then yep. I've always also been interested in business. And that's kind of how I ended up more in that corporate legal universe. And, and certainly is a choice that, that has got, worked out really well as I've embarked on my career path. When I was done with law school, I worked for a large law firm based in Boston for about a decade. And that was a wonderful training ground for me. To learn about the issues, to learn about the practice of law, to meet a lot of other attorneys and to work with a variety of clients in different countries. It, it was really an amazing learning experience. I will—I always have known fairly early on, I think, in my legal career that I will probably end up in house someday because being outside counsel is great and very rewarding. But you are in and out episodically. And I really enjoy the continuity of being with a company, being part of the business, providing that sort of partnership to the business and, and watching the company grow and thrive. And that's how I ended up at American Family. We moved from Boston to Madison, and American Family is, is a great presence in the Midwest and in Madison in particular. So I've been very fortunate to end up at the company about 10 years ago, have had a number of roles progressing through to Chief Legal Officer, and I've been in this role for about three years now. So it's been great.
0: Asya, uh, uh, there is so much I want to unpack there. <laughs> I, I kind of don't know where to start, but I'm going to go back. Uh, I'm going to go back to 1991 when you first arrived in the US. You come to the US at 13. You've uh, you've grown up in Ukraine. But just starting with that alone, it's an experience that I have had too where sometimes if you have not worked or been in a jurisdiction where the rule of law is not held let's say as dear to the hearts of societies as it is in the US you don't understand and you don't appreciate what it's not what it's like not to have it <laughs> and and having that contrast that you have had talk about how that's kind of influenced you having seen it not Followed as, as strictly or not as enshrined, you know, in society as it is in the U.S.
1: It just makes you appreciate having it more. I, I think it's it's like anything else. If you've always had it, it's a given. Um, one example I, I use a lot is when I was growing up, it has nothing to do with law, but we went through periods when there was no hot water or no running water. There'd be no hot water for a month, and then hot water would come back, and that's something that most people in the U.S. today take entirely for granted that you have running water and hot water all the time. So it's it's very similar with rule of law. You kind of assume that there's a set of rules, and everyone is expected to follow them. And their enforcement mechanisms, and they are mechanisms that set the rules in the legislature and the courts and and it's a system where uh, when you grow up in a country where there is a system but then people make choices as to whether to follow that system or not there are bribes there's favoritism and sometimes you know that the outcome based on the system should be x but then somehow it's y you just appreciate the system working as intended a lot more than people who have not witnessed it being otherwise
0: yeah. and no doubt being incredibly grateful having had the experience of the contrasting systems and understanding mm-hmm. that the world functions very differently mm-hmm. <laughs> when it exists and when it doesn't exist For um sure. what what about what, what about resilience tell me about because i can see the background that you've had the upbringing W- would necessarily have developed an entirely different level of resistance, perhaps determination, but certainly resistance in you than it might be, let's say, in our children. <laughs> it's something I've thought, my kids are in their 20s now and so forth, but I always grew up in w- where we had plenty, but having migrant parents and having only been one removed from no food or no electricity or very difficult circumstances it's not direct experience, but it's, it's closer and you get a better appreciation. I've always worried as, of course, um, uh, your family gets more secure than you have children and so forth. The distance between that kind of hardship and what creates the resistance that lives is so far that, that they don't benefit, if you like, from, yeah. from not having or from seeing what um, a different life, might be like. Have if, if you experienced that yourself?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I, I completely share the worrying sometimes that that the kids are growing up in a very different environment, which I am very fortunate that they are, but at the same time, they have not experienced the same level of adversities and maybe their parents have and how is it going to impact them when they grow up. Um, it definitely develops all sorts of resiliency and determination, I think, in you. When you move, you don't speak the language, you don't have any friends, the challenging economic environment because you're brand new and you basically move with nothing. You come from a challenging economic environment where you had a lot less than people have on average where you move to, and the expectations are very different. I think it makes you adaptable because you have to kind of, figure it out, go with the flow. If you understand half of what people are telling you, that's enough to get by (laughs) and and, and you kind of get there. But it it also makes you determined. Um, You look around, you see what is possible and it it drives you to succeed.
0: Yeah. And, And how do you try and teach or develop or instill that determination, whether it's in your own family, whether it's in the people that come to work with you? How... Because that's a very unique um, but powerful driving force um, to, to success, uh, and you want to recreate it. In a sense, it's funny. I used to, <laughs> I used to talk about in one sense as parents. Right, we do everything that we can to make a life for our children where they haven't had to suffer. Let's say some of the things that we have, and then on the same, t- by the same time, you actually deprive them of what they need. <laughs> To build the character, to, to 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 survive and lead. Well, sorry, to to, to lead kind of resilient and um, fulfilling lives. One of the things I talk about is I keep. I used to try and remind myself: do not deprive the children of the right to struggle. <laughs> I don't know if that if that resonates with you or not.
1: I but- I think that, that that resonates. I I think I try to recreate and I think in both my children for sure and and colleagues to a certain extent by it's not the same the circumstances they live through will never be the same and that's a good thing but th- the way i typically approach it is letting them figure things out on their own and maybe pulling back on the natural inclination of being more of a helicopter parent and kind of letting them Letting them speak for themselves, letting them advocate at school, letting them, they tend to be fairly competitive, but also sometimes things don't go your way and you fail and you don't win. And it's okay because you learn from not winning and you grow from that because they can't always have what they want and they can't always win. Um, and it's true to a certain extent, I think in the workforce as well, you you strive for things that you may or may not achieve, you need to stretch, and that develops that muscle to think bigger and go further, knowing that it's okay that sometimes things don't work out, and sometimes you don't succeed. And, and that, I think, leads us as individuals, as businesses, as companies to grow and, and innovate and, and kind of try new things that security of not always doing what you know how to do but being okay with doing something new knowing that it may not work out
0: just reflecting on discussion I had only a few days ago with um with my both of my girls when I told them that it's very rare you very rare you go into a job knowing exactly what you need to do in fact I confess to them sweethearts most days I don't know what I'm actually doing OK, I'm figuring it out as we go along, and that's OK. But if you've got the right mindset, the flexibility or the ability to stretch and grow and recognise you're not going to have all of the answers, that's it. that is incredibly powerful, I think. Sounds like that's, that's an environment you create at work, too, or you try and foster amongst your work colleagues, too. Let's talk about you've been in the current chief legal officer position for the last three years. What are the top two or three priorities for you? Let's say when you started and whether that's changed over the last few years.
1: I think the last few years have not been the most normal. Yes. <laughs> three years yep. was sort of the pandemic and now the yeah. economically challenging economies that we are living through, right? So I would preface that I don't know if the last two to three years as the best measure of kind of normal course of a trajectory of yeah. becoming the chief legal officer two things that I feel strongly about and is very reflective of our company values is innovation and a growth mindset. Trying to find new ways to do things, not being stuck on how things used to be 20 years ago. Um, Our company has changed a lot in the last decade. We went from a more regional insurance carrier to uh, US-based Collection of operating companies, largely through MA, but also um, natural growth as well. We have a number of operating companies spread across the country, and servicing that and that collection of companies is different than just one company where you know everyone, and maybe it's a little smaller, although it wasn't that small to begin with. It, it, it's a different mindset, and also learning to mold and take things from across the enterprise and finding a better way to do things. But, but in, innovation is really important. There are so many things, even in the last decade, in, in terms of data, in terms of artificial intelligence that are new and available to us now that weren't before. And even three years ago, there weren't certain things that are available today. Another area of priority both for the company and for myself is diversity and inclusion and and belonging. We are very focused on DEI. One of our strategic goals is increasing the diversity of our workforce by 50% by 24. We have groups that support the effort. We have a dedicated vice president of diversity and inclusion and executive diversity council. And that flows through to my organization as well. We are very focused on having a diverse group of people, yep. but also fostering and including them because diversity doesn't really work without inclusion.
0: Yep. What are some of the strategies you use, particularly when you're bringing new companies in, which might have had a different culture? And there's mixed cultures, of course. What are some of the strategies that you use to try and foster and develop that kind of The the innovation, growth, um, because it doesn't necessarily come naturally to everyone, particularly if you've been comfortable doing the same thing for a long time. And it's been, it seems to have been largely working because we all kind of, I think, to some degree struggle with that. What what are some of your strategies?
1: I would say one is definitely communication and transparency where... You can't really move too far without sharing yep. and, and being transparent. Another one is creating a safe environment yep. where everyone feels heard and they they don't shy away from sharing their ideas and sharing their opinions. Um, the use of technology is a good kind of enabler for any yeah. of this. Lawyers are not necessarily first in line for using no. New technology. No.
0: No. I'm, I'm sure you're talking about another group of professionals. Sure. <laughs> the
1: people we've never met. Okay. Right?
0: Correct. <laughs> Correct. But,
1: <laughs> but creating that kind of safety and, and trying new things, and, and frankly, our clients, both internal clients and our customers out there. A lot has changed in the last decade. A lot has changed in the last couple of years with Zoom and the platforms and connectivity being ubiquitous. We need to be ready to support that and support that innovation, new products, new ways of um, connecting with customers, for sure.
0: Any particular reason why you think it is a little bit harder with lawyers and legal teams to embrace that kind of innovation or technology? Anything...
1: I think they are, not all of them, but they are risk averse. Uh, They're in the business of managing risk for their clients. The training as well, I think, sets you up to be of that sort of more conservative mindset. But the way I usually approach it with the team is our job is to be partners finding solutions, not people saying yes or no. Because especially in the rapidly changing environment we live in, it is very important to partner with the business to find solutions that, that we can deliver to our customers, to our communities, versus just saying, well, we didn't do this before and therefore we shouldn't do it now.
0: i tell you, Asya, one of my strategies, of course, one thing we know about lawyers is they love to compete. Okay, so <laughs> I like to set little competitions Okay, with leaderboards and so forth around the technology. And then suddenly, um, suddenly the, the, the competition gene kicks in, shouting out some really great examples. Great examples of innovation, technology adoption, what, what it might be. And uh, yeah, I always find that kind of strategy helps because we are a competitive lot. <laughs> and so, so if there's a visible leaderboard out there, we want to be on it.
1: Yeah, we've, we've certainly done some of that wow. um, over the past few years. We, we've um, embraced lean innovation and certain Ignite methodologies that are exactly what you're saying, where you have boards, you have huddles, quarterly I hold a huddle for all of my teams and we usually spend a little segment highlighting the innovative things that each of the groups is doing, saying, look, this group did this and did that. Sometimes technology is a part of it. A lot of times it's not. It's just a different process or a different way of, of handling things that brings effectiveness and efficiency. So th- that is, you're absolutely right. I think sharing examples of what works and making it slightly competitive is a good thing.
0: <laughs> now on the D E and I front, you talked about some internal goals there. Any goals in relation to your law firm engagement or outside council selection? Have you set any goals around getting more diverse teams from your law firm partners?
1: We are in the process of developing a framework now. So we are a signer to the ABA pledge and use the data that we get from the ABA on the diversity of the various firms. We are focusing on our larger firms right now. And in fact, the team is very actively both engaged with the ABA task force, but also in designing our own framework as to how we will annually evaluate and also factor the diversity into our decision-making as to who we engage. And that is very much in line with other vendor diversity efforts that are going on at the company, and this is kind of our version and our flavour with respect to outside counsel in particular.
0: Because typically it's the legal department's biggest vendor, if you like. We don't like them calling them vendors, but... Uh, it's no surprises that that's where the focus is on improving uh diversity
1: that that is certainly one of our biggest levers and the second bigger lever would be hiring and making sure that you are when you hire you look at diverse slates and and make decisions accordingly so that your yep. diverse workforce is representative of the customers we serve.
0: What are some of the challenges you see for the legal industry, for general counsel perhaps, and the legal industry in the course of the next three, four, five years? Are there any big themes for you in terms of challenges that, that you see on the horizon?
1: I, I think there are a number of areas. Some some of them are industry-specific. We are in a highly regulated environment being an insurance company. So there's a lot of regulation that we obviously comply with on a daily basis, but also a lot of change in regulation and, and we are regulated at the state level. So we're dealing with changes in yeah. regulations uh, at by 50 states. That is something that we are very good at managing. But I think the pace of change has impacted the regulatory yeah. environment as well. There's sort of more coming down the pike and more agility is needed to quickly comply with all of the new regulations coming, in particular in the area of data and artificial intelligence, which has been in the news and and which is really, really important to us as an insurance company because we are in the business of data and we are in the business of pricing risk. That is certainly an area of focus for us in legal, but overall as well, they we are very focused on responsible use of data and artificial intelligence and making sure that we dot the I's and cross the T's in terms of consumer privacy and in terms of making sure that our models are operating as intended mm. and, and handling customer data with care, yeah. which it's a resource entrusted to us and we are doing our best to use it Appropriately, yeah. um, that I think is one area overall um, that that is important, but especially important to us yep. as being in, in the insurance industry.
0: And and, and it doesn't sound like Asya um, that that's getting um, going to get any easier in the coming <laughs> years. It's going to get more complicated, more regulated.
1: There have been efforts for federal privacy legislation which haven't moved forward. We'll see if they succeed the next time. But but I think it's challenging to find the middle ground that everyone is comfortable
0: with. One thing you just mentioned there I just want to pick up on. You mentioned just um, make sure that that you're using data responsibly. I take it that examples of where that might not be happening is when, for example, there might be an unintended bias that causes a result which is unintended by the the use of the data. Is that the kind of thing um, which is top of mind and making sure it doesn't happen for you?
1: For sure. And and we have seen examples of that with companies where somebody will write an algorithm for hiring people, feed in the factors of success, run the algorithm and have an unintended consequences of, I don't know, 95% male candidates. Uh, So that that has happened. And I think you have to be thoughtful holistically of the data you're putting in and, and you're getting out. We do have a a robust model risk management group within our enterprise risk management function that is going through the models, making sure everything is cataloged, making sure the right inputs are going in. And I think it it sort of becomes the core for your engineering teams and your data teams and your regulatory and legal teams and privacy sort of overarching on top of all of that. And just making sure that we are vigilant all along that chain, um, bringing value to our customers and yep. the end. So for sure.
0: And, and thinking again about the, the challenges ahead, anything in particular that you think from a GC or a CLO perspective, you're just going to have to be constantly vigilant about and um, in order to succeed in the future, I mean what you picked up around data and, and increasing regulation absolutely key. Anything else that you think is going to be a must in your armory?
1: A, a few other areas uh, come to mind. Cybersecurity is top of everybody's mind, somewhat also connected to data and privacy. but I think especially with the pandemic, the, there's been a dramatic rise in ransomware incidents and attacks. Uh, according to my colleagues who are much more technologically advanced than I am, we get attacked hundreds of orders of magnitude more now than we did before the pandemic. There are lots of threat actors out there. And the legal teams partner very closely with the cybersecurity teams on making sure that we have all the right tools and we are prepared in the event that we are attacked so so that we can respond appropriately and hopefully prevent another area on the litigation front we we live in in a very active environment there are a lot of reptilian theories out there there's social inflation yeah there are uh, many trends that we need to stay on top of to make sure that our customers are protected and, and we advocate on their
0: behalf Looking at some of those macroeconomic factors, the um, obviously the war in Ukraine, the supply chain disruption, the um, inflationary impacts we're seeing through the economy now, the prospect of a recession around the corner, and the uncertainty around all of that. How do you operate? How? How do you operate in that environment where there is such, you know, whether it's your customer base, whether it's the executive, whether it's your team, there are different levels of anxiety, I think, sure. right now. And being a leader in this environment, I just think has a, has a new level of kind of ex- complexity <laughs> because of that anxiety and that uncertainty.
1: It's always harder to operate in a challenging yeah. economic environment and that is most certainly where we are today. We've seen unprecedented things like both stock and bond markets being yeah. down at the same time in 50 yeah. years. Yeah. So th- there's this, these are very unusual times. I think it's important to embrace change and to be agile and able to pivot quickly. Because things change quickly and we can't be entrenched in the ways that we do the in the ways that we do things, in in kind of the expertise that we hire out, and the expertise that we have internally, because things change very quickly and we need to be agile and we need to be resilient in handling that. But but I also think due to the higher level of anxiety of the teams and just something that that happens in the outside world. Obviously, it impacts all companies from an economic standpoint. There's The supply is more limited. The pricing is higher. Rates are going up. It may take longer to obtain products that you need. I think showing an extra level of care for your employees and customers in this environment is really important. Yeah. Just being there and listening and being transparent because sometimes things are hard. Yeah. And there's nothing we can do about changing the environment. We can only do our best to adapt quickly and be resilient and meet these outside forces. I think another point I would make is the challenges present opportunities. A lot of innovation is forced innovation, like we saw in the pandemic, and things happen much quicker because there's some adversity that's creating the momentum for the change. So I, I would say another thing is being very open to opportunities and changes that we may discover in this unique environment yeah. as well.
0: I uh, see so one thing: I'm, I think about um, in this kind of environment, and when I think about leadership, I think about that attribute of empathy, and the really—I uh, think the leaders that really succeed in in this in this environment are the ones that have developed empathy as a core competency in their leadership style. I don't know if you've got any comments on that, but being able to really, really understand what others, but in your team or whether it's customers, perhaps less fortunate, you, whatever it might be, actually yeah. being able to understand, walk in their shoes and have a level of empathy that is really needed now.
1: I completely agree that empathy is a critical quality. Really for a leader at any point in time, but especially in in difficult times like the ones we are living through now, it's important to have empathy for the teams, understanding that they're living through these challenges now and sometimes they are being asked to make changes that were unanticipated to embrace the new economic environment. I think customers may be in in a more challenging place and and need that extra layer of support and empathy as well as well as our communities because it is very important that our communities are resilient and successful where we operate so that we have a healthy customer base it, it's it's good for the world but it's also good for business and it, it's an ecosystem where empathy is a really important part of it
0: i see i'll, I'll wrap up with some questions we haven't talked about i'm going to ask you are you prepared to share how is the, the war in ukraine how has that affected you Personally, I don't know if you've got any family uh, there at the moment. I,
1: I do have some um, non-immediate family. I have an uncle and a cousin there. My immediate family is is all in the United States. The word I typically use to describe it is surreal because when I look at, at sort of the atrocities that are happening, it reminds me of the footage that I've seen from World, World War II two. quite yeah. a bit. yeah. And it's very disturbing to me to know that, you know, 80 years later, as a society, we are a little bit in that same place, unfortunately. I am hoping every day that they find a peaceful resolution soon, but, but it's, it's challenging when you are dealing with an unprovoked attack on your homeland. There's a lot of pain. And you also see a lot of that empathy that we've talked about coming through i i know a lot of people who not only donate money but donate time to go to the borders to bring you know supplies to refugees and um i've been engaged in some of these efforts at our company we have for example a particular agent who comes from ukraine who have who has done a lot of that and It's just being engaged and involved and trying to do our part to donate both money and time, I think is really important and all we can do to support the hardships over there. But it it certainly has an impact. It has an impact on on me. It has an impact on my family. Even though my kids have never been to Ukraine, they recognize that, that there's a connection and they know that there are relatives there. And while they're safe, they are bombings sort of on the outskirts of where they live, and, and that's really, really scary. And hopefully something none of us will ever have to experience.
0: Yeah. And I can certainly understand your description of surreal, because it must feel like it must, it's a it's another world. It's not our mm-hmm. world, or it's a... Um...
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen photos of the city that I'm from that looked exactly like during World War Two. II, except in color was like the yeah. tank... Uh, protection and the sandbags around important landmarks it it is very similar in in a very surreal
0: Um, i I typically try and finish the podcast off on a on a high note note. i didn't do a great job on that one but but it's important and obviously it's it's real and something that is having a massive impact on the entire world Uh, Ask you one question I often ask advice that you'd give to your 25 year old self. Doesn't sound honestly, doesn't sound like you need a whole lot of advice. (laughs) But uh, anything that you'd look back, you look back now, you go, I I spent too much time worrying about that, or what what, what advice would you give?
1: I would say it's sort of having a somewhat longer term view and, and perspective. Yeah that sometimes things don't go exactly as planned, but that may be a good thing. You just have to kinda go with the flow a little bit and, and let things play out. I, I think that's something that I certainly have learned with age. Yep. Having sort of that broader perspective and knowing that sometimes things work in mysterious ways. And and also that you can't control everything. Because I I do think that As a lot of lawyers do, there's a tendency to desire for predictability and control. And as you grow a little more mature in your career and in your life in general, I I think there's more of an appreciation that would have probably saved me some stress (laughs) on the front end. I, I think having a family has a lot to do with that as well, where you do the best you can to give your children kind of everything you want to give them, but ultimately there are their own people who make their own decisions and you just embrace it and go with the flow. It it is somewhat similar to a lesser degree in the, in your professional career as well. Uh, some things happen and you may not expect them to happen in that way, but a lot of things they are a lot of times they're amazing things and things you couldn't have thought of, um, I know for me, when I went in-house, I wasn't specifically looking to go into insurance. Um, And it's fortuitous and amazing that that's where I ended up. Because I I think insurance, it's truly a noble profession where we are able to help people in the moments when they are facing challenges. And we can protect their dreams and be there for them. Which is a really, really noble and amazing thing to do not necessarily something that was planned out, but worked out great. So, and, and there, uh, that would be my advice. Just kind of go with the flow a little bit more.
0: Typically the career path is not, certainly it's not planned out when you're 25. Um, uh, as much as you want it to be, um it's certainly not, but that's the beauty of it because that's the journey and that's the, Paths that you didn't even know existed, but if you are open to taking, um, exploring, what I often say is taking a little bit more risk than you might otherwise be comfortable with, that's where the gold is, that's where the learning is, that's where the, um, the, the, the opportunity for growth um, is so, uh, and not trying to control all of that, because there is so much that you can't control. But if you're open to those opportunities, I think that's part of the growth mindset. Uh, so uh, so I love that advice. Uh, one final question. How long does it take between the time that you wake up and the time that you check your emails? More or less than 30 seconds? Asya.
1: Probably less.
0: That's excellent. All right. Well, well, that that answer has been consistent with the last three or four that I've had. So, um, Asya, it's been fantastic um, having you on the show. Thank you so much for for joining me and sharing your story. Um, I know the audience is absolutely going to love it. So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been very exciting.
0: Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.